motivation drives attention. We only pay attention to things long-term that are interesting to us, that we perceive to get some emotional value, some emotional positive investment back in ourselves, that even if it doesn't cash out in every moment, is working towards some pinnacle moment. I believe when we find your motivation, it will have certain characteristics, but you can't just know the theoretical characteristics and say, okay, that's enough for me to be motivated. Hello, my fellow humans, and welcome back to another episode of the Healthy, Happy Human Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Levitin, and every week I bring you discussions on topics to help you build a healthy mind, a happy body, and hopefully become an all-around better human. Because a rising tide raises all ships, and better humans make a better humanity. Remember, we're all in this together. If you want to keep on this journey with me, you can subscribe to the Healthy, Happy Newsletter, a weekly Friday email where I send out tips and tidbits of the things that I've been learning about and powerful quotes and just general helpful resources that I think will help you on your journey. It's completely free and the link to register is in the show notes. If while you're listening today, you're enjoying what you hear, take a second and snap a quick screenshot and upload it to Instagram and tag me at Paul Levitin so I can share in your enthusiasm and repost it to my audience. It really makes my day to see these. And If you get value from today's show, don't forget to share this episode with a friend or family member so that they can get some value along with you. And with that, it's time to start today's episode. Let's go and let's grow. Today, I'm talking to Nick Winkleman. Nick is the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union. Before working with Irish Rugby, Nick was the director of education and training systems for Exos. And for those of you who aren't in the fitness world like I am, Exos is one of the premier athletic development programs in the world. And they train NFL quarterbacks, MLB pitchers, and all types of amazing athletes. Nick completed his PhD through Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions with a dissertation focus on motor skill learning. And Nick is a recognized speaker and consultant on human performance and the coaching science. And he has numerous book chapters and peer-reviewed papers, all focusing on the intersection between coaching language and learning. And Nick is actually the author of a book called The Language of Coaching, The Art and Science of Teaching Movement, which is a phenomenal book that's not just about human movement, but about learning and how the human mind works. And that is why I wanted to have Nick on the show because of his vast and unique knowledge of not only humans, but how we think, how we learn, and why we do what we do. Nick was gracious enough to chat with me all the way from Ireland where he now lives and works. So we did have a few internet hiccups throughout the call and there are a couple of brief moments where his audio kind of gets shaky, but this episode was so good and so powerful and so packed full of knowledge that I didn't want to change anything. It really doesn't matter and I still could not wait to share it with you. So without anything else, here is my conversation with Nick Winkleman. All right, Nick. So your book, the art and co- I mean, the language of coaching, the art and science of teaching movement, which I have right here, I'm holding in front of me, it's, it's one of my favorites. And I, I recommend it to all movement professionals for sure. But, you know, reading this book, I get the science part, right? Because as a personal trainer, as a strength and conditioning coach, we're heavy in the science, but where does the art come in? So the, the art is Paul, I can, I can be talking to you on this podcast about my work, 
Tomorrow I can be talking to an athlete where their experience is on center stage of the work coming to life and, and everything in between. And in all those cases, we may be principally talking about the same kind of thing, but the way we say it with what words, with what tone, with what verbal and nonverbal, all that might change to suit and better connect with the person in front of us. And so the way I like to, to frame that up uh, from a communication perspective is, let's say we move into a house. Okay? I move into a house first and I walk in and, and the walls are white. I'm like, I don't want white walls, I want blue walls. So I paint them blue. But then you move in 20 years later after I moved out, you're like, I don't want blue walls, I want red walls. Well, that's a lot like communication. It's still the same walls, it's the same structure, it's the same meaning, but how I get it across to me, you, your unique experiences, preferences, likes, and dislikes might require a different coat of paint. And so when it comes to communicating, knowing how to have this meaning, this information you want to get across, but knowing how to message it, curate it, and wrap it in a manner that suits the person in front of you, that lowers the barrier to understanding and learning, that's where the art comes in. It's, it's easy to give principles around how that works, but ultimately it is a skill that is learned in the act of using it. It's trial and error. It's offering something to one person and seeing it land. It's offering the same thing to another person and seeing it fall completely flat on its face. And then learning how to engage a person to then ultimately find the raw material, some story, some preference, some question, that reveals to you as the person providing the information, oh, I think it would be much better presented in this way versus that. I like blue, you like red, case in point. And so that's the art and that's the hard part with any science. It's easy to talk about the black and white theory and the empirical evidence of what we know, bring it into real life, especially when it's human interfacing, that's what takes you a lifetime because every person is a new puzzle to be solved. Every single conversation requires a little bit different orientation and connection, even though the motivation behind what I'm saying might be identical. Yeah, I love that analogy of the, the, the same walls with the different coats of paint. And that kind of that last bit there, I completely agree with, but it also brings me to think about it kind of a paradox because you're completely right when you say that, you know, everyone is completely different and unique, Right. But then I also, something I say a lot on the show is that like the healthy, happy human, we all are humans at the end of the day, and we all kind of are the same in, in some, in some ways. So I'm wondering how you kind of see those two things interacting of us all being so unique. And yet we are all theoretically inherently the same. A hundred at a, at a, at a bedrock perspective at the bottom of it, whatever the, it is at the bottom of it. We all are, are cut from the same uh, biological material. Completely agree, Paul. I think the reality is oftentimes in, in practice, in action, um, what's built up from that bedrock is different upbringing, slightly different biological expression. Through that biological expression, different preferences, whether you call it personality or, or, or the like, uh, different memories, different experiences. And all of that impacts the way we see and interact with the world at the level of our biology that is malleable. 
And thus it's at that malleable level of, of biology, of personhood built up from humanhood, right? That we are oftentimes interacting with, especially in my world uh, as, as a coach. And so learning how to break down those barriers, how to open up and give me access to how you think and see the world such that I can offer something in your personal language, right? You and I might both speak English, but I think there's a Paul language and there's a Nick language. There's the way that, that we naturally like to hear, consume information and digest it. And for me as a coach is trying to figure that out. I know the message. I have the soldiers inside the Trojan horse, but maybe for me, it's a Trojan horse. And for you, it's a Trojan elephant. Right. What wraps that information, what delivers it to the doorstep, you know, whether you like chocolate frosting or you like vanilla frosting, it's still sugar. It's still sugar, Paul. But the way it hits the palate, chocolate or vanilla is based on preference. And so for me, that's what I'm always trying to figure out. And so maybe just if, if you can, if I can for your audience, they may, might be like, what is what is this person on about? So. Just to give people a, a background, and, and I'm going to talk about it from my lens of how I use it. And, and Paul, I know you're going to kind of pull out the more generalities that we can use to help the, the whole world with, with the project of your podcast. But I'm strictly interested um, in terms of my passion project in this interface between what a, a movement professional says and how it impacts the way that the recipient the athlete, the patient, the client, the way it impacts the way they see themselves and the way they move. And so if I'm teaching someone to sprint, an example might be, I tell you to push the ground away. And I tell you to push the ground away with this idea that I wanna see better extension, better power, and you want better speed as an athlete. And so I offer up these words, push the ground away. The crazy thing is, Paul, you have to hear those sound waves and convert them into muscular impulse, into muscular force. And what's really interesting about that is how you do that is you don't consume a coaching cue by thinking about it. You consume a coaching cue by feeling it and becoming it. You're not literally just these words floating around your head. When you hear that cue push the ground away, you embody it. You almost like, and I love in the first Matrix when Neo right plugs in, he's like, I know Kung Fu. It's kind of like that. You hear the coaching cue and unavoidably it either resonates with you and you feel the change before it's happened. Because how else do I go out there and do it unless I already know what I'm chasing, what I'm trying to feel, the improvement in my body's meant to be. And so ultimately, 100% of my passion project work is focusing on, as you say, the science and the art of getting and offering these verbal prompts that can be cashed in as physical action, as physical change. And so if someone listening is not a coach, which many of them probably aren't based on what you told me, what this means is we're trying to clean up your cognition. We're trying to generate a mental state that has low cognitive pollution and increases the odds of you getting physical clarity and the way you move throughout the world, whatever your movement goals might be. And I'll be the first one to say, Paul, that these ideas well transcend as we get into the weeds here, movement, but at least that's our starting point. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's what's so interesting to me about your book specifically is 
the whole, what I would say a first half or first third, maybe has nothing to do with movement in my, in my opinion, right. It's more about, it's about communication. It's about learning. It's about the brain. And that's why I love stuff like that, because as you said, I'm all about the connections, right? So this is very similar. When I first uh, took precision nutrition, I took their, their nutrition course and half the textbook was, you know, metabolic science and how do we digest food? And the entire half, the textbook was human behavior and how do we create change? So I'm always using this uh, fitness and nutrition and, and movement as just a jumping off point, as you said, because something you mentioned right there, when you were explaining, you know, the, the whole, the cue of, of, of sprinting, well, you're talking about cueing, you said either it resonates or it doesn't. Right. So something you'll say something like push the ground away. And to some people that means something. And to some people it doesn't. And to me, I'm thinking about that. It doesn't have to do just with sprinting. That's just motivation in general, right? We have all these, these on Instagram, all these platitudes and the, you know, just, you know, do better work harder or whatever. And like, for some people that is motivation because some people it hits them right in that right way where they get that emotional feeling response. But for some people they'll read that stuff and they'll never, ever act on it because it, it doesn't mean anything to them. So, you know, how do you, I guess, find the right thing for the right person to get them to want to take the action or to be able to take that action. Now, Paul, in this question, do you want me to, because I can answer it one of two ways or both ways, if you'd like, I can answer it and how I apply it at the micro level of consuming a cue and applying it to the way they move. I think your question lends itself to that. Or I can equally give you my opinion on on how we, so to speak, find a way in to hit that emotional trigger trigger with a person. Because in my work as a coach, I have to be able to do both. Yeah, let's do the second one. I like that. Second, the second one. So, um, I I'm going to kind of start thousands of you as I, as I like to do, and then and then narrow into something maybe more concrete. So. Very early in my work, when I was just studying learning in general, you you can't, if you study learning long enough, as you rightly said, Paul, you inevitably find yourself studying motivation because people tend to only learn things, like truly learn, deeply learn things over an extended period of time, especially of their own accord, if they're motivated to do so. So learning and motivation are intimately linked together, both in in, in theory and evidence, and certainly I think in most people's experience. And so when I was very early on just trying to understand how we learn anything, I I came across kind of two phrases, these are in my words now, that help start to put this together, and then we'll get into the, the, the latter. And that is attention, the character of our attention, how we pay attention to the world around us. Attention underpins learning, okay? So without attention, learning cannot happen. We only learn from the things we pay attention to. So if attention drives learning, what you will also come to realize is motivation drives attention. We only pay attention to things long-term that are interesting to us that we perceive to get some emotional value, some emotional positive investment back in ourselves, that even if it doesn't cash out in every moment, is working towards some pinnacle moment. So in sport, right, it's hard work, hard work, hard work. But if you're in the last game of the season, as as people like to say, 
it pays off in this emotional, positive emotional release. Other people, when they're playing music, they're getting that positive emotional return with every single moment of the activity. And whether it's sport, music, or for some people going on a walk, right? When, you're, when your motivations truly align with your attentional investments as a byproduct, you find yourself in, in this flow state. And we know, and I'm sure you've talked about it on your podcast with Csikszentmihalyi, or if you look towards Taoism or Zen Buddhism or meditation, all of these different practices, principles, and definitions point to this harmony where you are fully invested in the now, fully invested in what you are doing, and it for the enjoyment of the act, no reward that comes as a byproduct of that act. Okay, so that's that is the space we're dabbling in, which is pretty cool, right? And, and impacts far more than just movement. So the question then remains: how does one or what are the characteristics of motivation? And I think the characteristics of motivation, Paul, are not the same as how we find your motivation. I believe when we find your motivation, it will have certain characteristics. But you can't just know the theoretical characteristics and say, okay, that's enough for me to be motivated. But let's start with the characteristics. And for me, these have not betrayed my intuition or my own experience. And so there's many different models of motivation, but the one I subscribe to, uh, which I really like, is is SDT, self-determination theory. And, and for most people in the leadership motivation space, it, it seems to be, if not all, part of their formula for how they think about even, even motivational interviewing is based on a lot of these principles. And so for someone who hasn't heard this, it is three major molecules, three major ingredients. Number one is autonomy. Do you feel you have self-control? Do you have personal causation in this thing you're engaging in? We tend to be more motivated by the things we choose to engage with for our own personal set of unique reasons. That's autonomy. Number two is competence. Do I actually feel that I am getting better at this thing? That's where coaches and teachers are really important because it is not always obvious on how to get better at something. So I might have autonomy. That autonomy might completely collide with, with my own drives, values, and desires to get me going. But without some sense of progress, rarely do people continue. So autonomy kind of needs to be there from the beginning, the middle, and the end. But competence needs to be there to keep me moving all the way forward at a certain point. And then the final piece, which I think shows up in different ways, is, is relatedness. Um, normally we like to do these things in some social context. So whether it's the support of a family, a partner, a coach, a teammate, we want to feel that this thing we are doing is somehow impacting the world beyond ourselves in some form or fashion. Even if it's someone who's listening to me play my guitar around the fire, that's bringing joy to others, seems to aggregate with elevating my joy of it. Not to say that people can't do music just for, the, for their own right. Oftentimes they will. But some kind of social involvement is, is important for social creatures. Now, I can't then just go out into the world and say, okay, I'm just going to choose to do this. And because I've chosen to do it, I'm going to be motivated to do it. Everybody listening knows that they've started many things and don't continue on with them. And so that's why I said the ingredients of motivation is not the same as finding the thing that you're motivated to do. 
And so how do you ultimately uh, engender change? Now, I, I said this to you before I got on the call. I allowed myself to get in the worst shape possible as a strength coach about mid, midway through COVID, okay? I got into my highest weight. I was not physically or mentally in a great place. But the question is, why was it this point in time? Why was it on this day, about nine months ago, that I finally woke up and felt completely, utterly, unavoidably motivated to make a change? I think that's what many people are looking for is how can I manufacture that moment to trigger an action that results in sustainable change? And here's the way I think about it and get into specifics, but I'm going to start with the generality. Our current behaviors, whatever collection of behaviors we have, okay, the first thing we have to understand is the things that we are now doing day in, day out, take low cognitive effort. They are literally habituated for better or for worse. They take low cognitive effort. And when I think about this as I'm going to use a lot of kind of space examples, not, not because I like space necessarily. I do. I don't have anything against it, but they make sense here. And that is you are in an orbit right? You're, you are orbiting around this called this, this, this habitual gravitational pull. And for you to change orbit, think about this, for you to change orbit, there needs to be a gravitational pull greater than the one you're on to pull you out of that into a new orbit, into a new habit, better eating, better sleeping, whatever it might be. Now, the question is, what can do that? What is a powerful enough stimulus to pull, not only pull you as an initial impulse out of your current orbit, but then stick you in a new one? And people read books like Atomic Habit and others, which are phenomenal. I've read them, I recommend. But even when you know the mechanics of how it happens, until it's happened to you, it doesn't feel real. So I am a big believer that people need, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a loaded word here for, for, not for effect. This is the word I use. I believe people need direct or indirect trauma to truly make lasting habitual changes. Now, the reason I qualify preempting my use of the word trauma is people can go to the absolute worst thing they can think of. And that's the only thing that deserves the label or term trauma. Here I am, I'm borrowing the word and asking people to think of it in a, in a broader sense, right? Traumatic can be see, you know, getting in a car crash that even if you're not harmed, that can be traumatic for you. Or seeing a loved one go to the hospital for something as benign as a broken limb or as sinister as a heart attack. For me, there is certainly levels of trauma, but what it says is trauma for me is something that happens in a moment, in an instant, or accumulates to an instant and leaves you with an unavoidable emotional imprint that makes you feel like you need to do something. Because if you don't do something, and as we know in the psychological therapeutic realm, if you don't do something with your trauma, inevitably it does something with you. And usually it's not good. And so for some people, that trauma actually has to fester and it has to build until the energy of it pulls you into a new habitual orbit or takes you down into a, into a to, to use this nether space analogy, into a proverbial black hole. 
And so for, for, for me, I say direct or indirect trauma. Indirect trauma is where we see something happening to somebody else. The closer they are to us, so family members, probably the stronger that trauma feels, right? But that's indirect. It's not me. Trauma to me is something that physically happens to me. I own classic example is someone almost loses their life for any reason, but they almost lose their life. They finally come into contact with not with the theory of loss of life, but the actuality of loss of life. And they, whatever it is, for some people, it's losing weight. For some people, it's rekindling friendships. For other people, it's leaving, leaving a relationship. It can manifest in many ways, but it's crazy how after almost losing your life, people will take the action they've always voiced, but never actioned and actually bring it to life. This is all pointing to the same thing. And so for me then, two, two things, three things happened to me that pulled me out of my gravitational pull. One, my wife said she wanted to get in her wetsuit to be able to do a triathlon from when we were just married and she could not fit into it. And I, in that moment, felt a personal responsibility that in letting some of my own habits slip, there has been an echo of that to my family. And that's not to, to take personal responsibility away from my wife or put excess in personal responsibility outside of my sphere of control, but nonetheless, it's a natural human emotion. Second thing was, I was starting to hear myself talk to my kids around good movement and good nutrition as a movement professional, seeing that on a near daily basis, I was betraying my own suggestions. Harkening back to my favorite quote, don't talk about your philosophy, embody it. And I felt that I was not, I was not living that. And then the third piece was just the, the, the good old fashioned mirror and the scale, which for me was the lowest on that list, mind you, of reasons to change, was that I just wasn't happy anymore with, with, with what, what had happened to my, my, my outer to inner balance, my outer, I was out of balance. And so those three things collided together to create a compounding orbital change that was enough to get me going with then my early results, there's competence, compounding, strengthening that orbit till now I'm you know, almost 50 pounds gone. I'm seeing behavioral change from my kids with no further recommendations from my words because they're seeing it in, in, in the actions. And my wife as a family, I'm just pointing to the fact that there's a real life example of things that had to come together that had certain layers of trauma and that events occurred or accumulated that had an, a, 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 an emotional imprint on me. And so the next logical question people have to ask is, if I'm not changing, why am I not changing? And people throw around readiness to change, reasons or whatnot. But you know what? Sometimes it just needs to be clear to you that the current orbit you're on is far stronger than any alternative or the effort you're willing to put in to make that alternative. And part of me wants to say, that's okay. That's okay. If you're not ready to change, just accept that. But if you continue to feel that anxiety build inside of you, if you continue to feel that anxiousness and that desire to change inside of you, understand that actually, okay, sit with that. Sit with that because you might just need to allow it to continue to accumulate until the gravity is strong enough to make the change, which means there's going to be this really painful middle point 
where you're aware of the pain and the desire to change, but it hasn't reached a critical level for you to do anything about it. But that's where reading the Instagram post and even listening to a podcast like this for someone who's done it and can lay out the path might accelerate some people's entry into giving it a go, recognizing that as they start to build results in the direction of travel, that sometimes can be the last bit needed to fully pull them into the new orbit. Yeah. Wow. Um, uh, <laughs> I love that. Everything that you just said. I mean, for anyone listening that last, I don't know how you're that 10 minutes or so was just a, a, a complete masterclass on, on human motivation and behavior. So rewind that and, and re-listen. And I just want to say one, I, I always appreciate people coming on here and being open and honest about their own struggles and their own challenges. So I, I appreciate you, you sharing that a lot. And you, you know, something that you said was that you felt out of balance, you know, with your, your, your inside and your outside. And I think that a lot of times people assume that like balance is a, a state that we reach, you know, it's like, okay, cause you're a, a, a strength and conditioning coach for 20, 30 years and you know, all this stuff and whatever that you're, you're a fit guy. And like, that's it, like lock it in. We're done now. But, you know, I had um, uh, Dr. Shante Cofield on here, the movement maestro, who I, I'm sure you know. And sh what she mentioned, this was, you know, a, a, a long time ago. I don't know, remember the episode, but what she said, with something that's always stuck with me is that it's it's not balance, it's balancing. And balancing is an act and it's 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 alive all the time. You don't reach a balance that you just stay at. It's, it's you're constantly balancing those scales. And, you know, 50-50 is balanced, but 80-20 is also balanced and 99-1 and is also balanced. And, and sometimes our life gets out of whack in those ways. And, you know, that's and that's when sometimes we just learn to live with it and we just learn to accept that lower level of of living. And sometimes that the trauma happens. And I, I totally agree with that, that the way you phrased it, because I usually, you know, when I was a personal trainer, I saw this all the time. It's like I, I would say people change when they hit rock bottom you know, for better or for worse, that, that is what it is, right? A lot of times, a lot of people would come into me at the gym and it was because, you know, either they went to the doctor and the doctor told them that they had to lose weight or they turned 50 and their dad died at 50 from a heart attack or they saw it was, it's always something crazy to make crazy life change is something crazy has to happen. So, and I, I think you're, you're right as well when you say that, like, it's okay to say that, right? It's okay to say like, I don't like where I'm at, but the reality of what it would have to do to change that is probably a little bit outside of my scope right now, right? Like I don't like my weight, but I'm also not willing to do the things that it, that that I have to do to change that. So for right now, I'm going to stay where I'm at. And, you know, I think that just phrasing it in that way then becomes a motivator for people because people don't want to say that, right? What they want to say is I can't, right? They want to say, I uh, well, I just can't lose weight. I'm too busy. I'm too this, I'm too that. But what is more powerful is to say that like, you know, I want to lose weight, but I also have, I want to, I value going out for drinks with my friends. And if this means cutting that out on Friday and Saturday nights, then that's not something that I'm willing to do. But then that brings us face to face with that discrepancy, that internal discrepancy. And, and then we have to kind of, of balance that and figure it out. So I'm curious if you found a way that you've either used in your personal life or with your, your clients or, or anyway, in general, that we can maybe skip the trauma or, or fast track it at least, or if I'm saying that it literally is that we have to, again, hit rock bottom before we're going to make that change. Well, I think, in, I think in a manner of speaking, you've, you've answered that question in, in the formulation of it, in the way I think, and that is, I find myself getting some internal signal that 
the way I'm to use uh, to use the maestro's term, the way I'm presently balancing feels out of balance. <laughs> Uh, we, we, we all know what that feels like in our own first person experience. We get some kind of emotional response that alerts us to something. Usually what I think about it is, is it takes me away from the now. Anytime something takes you away from the now, I believe it is your, it's, 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 the, it's the wholeness of your being telling you that, that something's not jiving with you right now. And Many people will be like, well, geez, Nick, Paul, that's me every day all the time. Well, yeah. And that's why podcasts like this have purpose. That's why people like Tony Robbins exist. That's why, you know, people have to create techniques like motivational interviewing because it's to help people get better at their balancing. And so how do we, how do we fast track it? I believe everyone's pathway to fast tracking is a little bit different. You know, I always joke around that the most important person the motivational book is for is the person that wrote it. So many people forget that you don't write a book like that having not been through something. And you feel so compelled to share what worked with you, falsely thinking, not through any sinister way, but falsely thinking nonetheless, that it will impact everyone in the same way equally. And for some, it does. And I think really, really popular people like Tony Robbins and others probably have more universal messaging that does more good than not and impacts more than not. And then other people have a more nuanced uh, way of going about things. But, but either way, these, these principles exist. And what you'll find is some of them contradict each other, but work equally nonetheless. And so I think the first thing to recognize is not everything is going to work for everybody. This is why you could have 20 different fad diets at any given time on the social sphere and, and thousands of raving fans, right? And cr critics across each of them. And so the first thing that people have to recognize is it's about finding the way for them, not the way. And also recognizing that they're up against it nowadays. They're up against it because there's so much noise out there, whether it be at, at, at the bookstore, to Twitter, to Instagram, there's so much noise. And that they need to give themselves a little bit of, of, you know, a little bit of credit and a little bit of space to recognize that what they're trying to do now is, is harder than ever to try to come to the source that will work for them. Because now they have to put in all of this waning energy just to find the solution. Then they have to study and understand to then start their journey. And that's why many people, it's these preemptive steps before the action begins that exhaust them, intentionally overloading, and they say, forget it. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, but that's doom and gloom, so let's try to put some light on that. When I feel the internal voice that says, yeah, something needs to change, I, I will read. I will start to read. Um, or I'll, 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 I'll do more podcasts, or I'll do more presentations. I start to take action, not knowing where that action will take me. Meaning I am missing a critical ingredient in my meal right now, but I have no idea what the ingredient is. Because if I knew what the ingredient was, Paul, I'd put it in the soup. And so how do I figure out new ingredients, new concepts, new triggers, I've got to expose myself to new stuff. And so I have to play in that realm of 
trying to figure out what I don't know, right? So I know what I don't know. And then there's the, I don't know what I don't know. I'm trying to play in those two outer rings of my existence. And for someone like you and I, who come out of this human development, human behavior movement space, it's far easier for us. We still have to take this, take the same actions. You and I still need to read. We need to search. We need to seek to understand. You said earlier, me research, you know, me search versus research. I love that. My me search, yes, I can shortcut it because I probably know the authors, the books, the concepts, the key words to get me to the information I need. And so again, here's empathy back to the listener who doesn't come from this space or this world. They have an added challenge. Not all, they can know they need to read or they need to some form, but it can become overwhelming to even know where to start. So even on that end, we have, we have a bit of an advantage. But there's this concept, just to put a footnote on this, that I think is really interesting, in baseball, okay? And I was sitting with some hitting coaches one time, and this, this will come back. And they were talking about how they teach hitting. And they were just giving one of their internal chats around coaching, was at a minor league team. And I heard one of the coaches say, hey, one of our key concepts we're talking about with the players is move to see, move to see. And what that meant is they literally need to have their body moving in some form or fashion towards the pitcher. Doesn't mean they're going to swing, but moving towards the pitcher. Because what that does is by moving, it actually causes the horizon to cross the eye. And when the horizon crosses the eye, it actually gives you a richer picture of what is in front of you, helping the hitter go, no, go, swing, don't swing. I love that for life. Move to see. If you currently feel blinded by your circumstances, if you currently feel immovable, then any action, any action could be the action to reveal the actions you need to take moving forward whether it be going for a walk, reading a book, screaming as loud as you freaking can to break the fucking noise, excuse my language, you can bleep me out, in your own head to just do anything that is different than what is currently weighing you down. I know that sounds stupidly simple, but therein lies why it betrays so many people. It's That's how it starts. And it's whether or not you continue on with that taking of strategic action until the action reveals itself. But that's how I have always operated. And it requires at times long stints of psychological, emotional pain, distrust and questioning. But you know what, Paul, as my favorite uh, philosopher says, a fire cannot burn itself, nor can a knife cut itself. So when you fully step into it and become it, ironically, the harm starts to go away and you own the change that the pain in the first place is clearly telling you, you need to take. Yeah. I love that. Uh, the, the whole movement thing is exactly, exactly that. And, and it's, you know, you said it's so simple. People will, will dismiss it. And that's what I found is that the simplest things are also the simplest things to ignore, right? Oh, what, what good. I used to be like that. What good can parking farther away in the parking lot do? Oh, taking the stairs instead of the elevator. Oh, just eating a little bit more greens or something like that. But the simplest things have the biggest impact because you can do them so often. It's the compound interest that adds up over time. And you know, what you said about movement there, move to see, I think, I mean, like, this is what my philosophy of life. I've done an, an entire episode about this back a couple of weeks ago, but literally I say like 
movement is life. Stillness is death. It literally is. It is that simple. Movement is the law of the universe. When things are moving, when your heart is beating, your, your blood is pumping, you're alive. And when you stop moving, you die. When a plant stops growing, it doesn't stay the same. It is dead, right? So everything is movement. It, the, the universe is, everything is circulating, circling. And when you stop moving, you you die. And, and to, to use your analogy there, sometimes just getting moving, no matter if you understand the direction or where you're even going is so powerful. And then you can use process of elimination, right? Because I've used myself for an example, right? It's like, I don't really know, you know, uh, I recently, I, I was working at a gym full time for, for almost 10 years and I was managing the gym and I was doing personal training and I was growing my business on the side. And I, I quit a few months ago to go all in on my own business. And, you know, people would ask me, they're like, like, you know, what, what are you going to do? You know, uh, like how, how's that going to work? And I'm like, I'm like, well, I don't know, but I know that if I'm working every day, waking up, working on my business, eating healthy, exercising, doing my best to, to bring good and light into the world and, you know, making connections and growing my network, I just can't see how that doesn't work out for me. Right. So it's like, I'm adding good things. Now I'm not adding at watching more Netflix. I'm not adding eating more McDonald's. So we can just start to say like, I can take actions. And in general, I usually know because we have a compass inside of us. I, I use this all the time with my clients. Just like, be honest with yourself. You know, at the end of the day, if you did or didn't move towards the life that you're going towards, right? Like, like we think that like, well, I don't know what to eat. I don't know what to do, but you do, right? We, we, you, you kind of know. Right. You knew when you were gaining, when you were gaining all that weight, when you weren't exercising, when you, when you had fallen out of your routine, when you were ordering out a little bit more, when you were having a, a third or fourth beer, when normally you would have said no, all of, none of these things were a surprise to you. Right. So we have this, this internal compass inside of us. So it's not going to tell us exactly what to do, but it's going to point us in the general right direction. Right. It's like, I don't know. I might not know exactly where I need to go, but I know that I need to walk towards movement and walk away from sitting on the couch and watching Netflix all day. So we have this thing. And then the, the getting going is what keeps us going because the, the hardest part is breaking that initial friction of inertia. Right. It's the, or, or I call it the surface tension, right? Whereas right when you're about to leave the water, the surface tension is what, what, what keeps you stuck. So I think that it's so powerful to talk about this kind of stuff, because again, I think a lot of people, what holds them back, as you mentioned, is like that kind of that beginning stuff. Where do I even start? How do I even find this stuff? And admittedly, it, it is easier for me, right? It is easier for you because I live in this world and I do this research on my own for, as part of my, as part of my job. And we are fighting against this world of infinite inputs where we only have so much time in the day and it's so easy to get distracted. And it's so easy for people to kind of, you know, fall off of the, the thing when they don't even know what that thing is. So, yeah. you know, what I'm wondering is if, you know, you have any ideas about kind of, you, you know, you mentioned like the, the noise, right. Of, quieting the noise or what do you do, you know, in a world of that's just blasting me in the face with, <laughs> you know, call it opportunities, call it inputs, call it noise at any given moment. But where focus is, I think the currency that is going to take us the farthest in the next couple of decades, how do we find the balance between those things? Well, I, again, I think you've, you've captured and framed uh, a way to answer that in part as you formulated the question, which I really like, and that is um, we, one as humans, 
we overassess or overvalue our predictive abilities, which I think then means that we can at times create this idealistic endpoint that we want to achieve or pathway to this endpoint. And we try to predict all the steps that will get us there. And in doing so, it can mean that we spend a lot of time retreating from reality in our head, theorizing, well, if I do this, or it's not quite the right time, or I need to wait for this to happen. And it's because we have all of this prediction going on that certain things need to happen in a certain way, in a certain order. And in many cases, we're not moving to see. We're not realizing that, well, part of my insight for progress and progression can only be revealed in, in, in action as I'm moving, as I'm engaging with the world, as I'm strategically using trial and error, as you say, doing the things I know I need to do, knowing that it doesn't need to be perfect day one, right? But that in doing anything, I can iterate. I, I, I am a process like a piece of software. I can rapidly iterate. And so I, I think it's interesting. When you drive a car at night on the road, your lights will light up just enough space in front of you for you to safely drive this car, but not miles ahead. And it certainly doesn't light the path all the way to the freaking destination. And I think that's a useful analogy for how we need to operate. We need to have just enough insights, just enough strategy to know, hey, what am I gonna eat tomorrow morning? Maybe a bit of planning, what's my workout gonna be? Understanding if something doesn't quite feel right, I'm gonna pivot, I'm just gonna go for a walk today, but I'm still gonna be active, right? I know activity is the output, how I get to that might have three or four different strategies, three or four different nodes. And so I think people overly burden themselves with all the things they have to plan, predict, and account for all the way to the future when they just need a strong pair of, of headlights, just enough to see far enough in front of them to make the next step, the next best decision. But as you say, it's difficult to get going on that journey. It's difficult to, to, to get started. But I'll be honest, I used a similar enough analogy with the orbit, breaking the orbit, the initial break of momentum in one direction to start going in the direction needs to be larger at first than it does once I'm actually moving in the direction of travel. And so how do you initially start it? I, I think a lot of the commentary we've provided so far lends itself at the very least to how, how to think about that. But for me, I know mental ecosystem that affords itself for making good decisions and in doing so affords itself for enriching and deepening the right habits but also starting to change others and so I'll, I'll go back to something I pointed to early on in this conversation and that is around looking at the balancing act between internal theorizing concept self past future versus externalizing and being utterly embedded in the now, in the moment. And everyone knows that when they're in a flow state, when they feel in their balancing to be in balance, uh, that typically that involves them heavily involved in life, an active participant in life. When you can't remember what you did that day, Paul, that usually for me is a pretty good sign. I spent a lot of it ruminating. I don't know if people have ever thought about it that way. 
In fact, I've never even thought about it that way until I just uttered those words. But I actually think that that's an interesting thing to reflect on. On a day where you're like, what, what, what happened today? What did I do? I wonder how much of that is because actually your attention was not placed on your circumstances. You weren't embodied and enacted in a, in a real sense in the world around you, but you had retreated, you were ruminating, you were thinking, you were worrying. And so it's like, how can you take action that centers yourself? I know for me, stuff that I qualified, even though I wouldn't voice this to my wife as a lot of woo-woo, you know, would be like hiking. Knew it. I thought of it more as like this mechanical investment. Okay, I'm going to go hike to get my, you know, caloric expenditure out. But I wasn't thinking about it for the act and love of just doing it. Uh, cold water, sea swimming, cycling, right? My world was just this mechanical. I'm in a gym. I lift weights for this very specific, if not superficial reason. And so for now, in many a great philosopher, I think it was Nietzsche that said, all great ideas occur while walking. And so getting out and taking action into an environment, and here's the key word, that centers me back on life. I'm, when I say the word life, I'm not talking about it in this very gaseous, proverbial sense. I'm talking about life around you, the world around you. Get back in contact with the grass, with the air, with the water, with nature, things that you can sense, feel, touch with your whole being that is in that moment real. It's true. It's not this, will this happen in the future? It's not this theoretical, why did that happen in the past? It is a freaking oak tree that is there and as unjudgmental as the life you want to live. And sometimes, it is reminding yourself that this is the theater that life plays out in. And every time you're upstairs ruminating, you're off stage. Now, there is a time you got to learn your script. You got to read your books. You got to get your skills right so you can get the most when you are acting, showing up in life. But you will start to internally suffer deeply when you lose sight that the world that you actually want to exist in and where you are most fulfilled is not behind the fucking curtain. It's out on the stage. And that takes work to ask yourself, am I on stage right now? Not in the superficial, literally acting sense, but the theater of your life where you are the main character in the freaking audience are you enacting? Are you participating? Or are you a passenger of your own life? These are bumper stickers. They're Instagram reels. Yes, but they're also true. And it's trying to find a pathway to live that truth for yourself. I'm on that journey. You're on that journey. Everybody is. But for some people, they need to recognize that that's what's playing out. And that, for some, is what's needed to start the change. Wow. I love that. I love that, uh, that, that little, uh, epiphany that you just had, because I have never thought about it that way either. And I think that that's super powerful. I'm going to actually, uh, ponder on that a bit today. Um, but yeah, that, that last bit, and you might've, you know, my last question, which you kind of answered just now, um, but I'll, but I'll toss it to you anyway. And this is the last question that I ask all of my guests is if you can give listeners an action step that they can use, right now today, as soon as they take their headphones off from listening to this episode to start living a healthier, happier life, what would it be? 
if I was literally to give a singular action step of any other, and again, the person the motivational book was written for above all else is themselves. So there's my bias coming into it, is, is, is go take a 30 to 60 minute walk. Wherever is gonna bring you the most joy. And if, if you're inside, it's raining, you don't wanna go outside. I live in Ireland, so we get out no matter what. I would, I would just, I would sit quietly for 30 meters, 30 meters, 30 minutes and, and reflect. Create space for this podcast to work on you. Because if you go right on to the next thing, you may as well not listen to it at all. So for me, something that allows you to create some space to process and reflect and see what, if any, of this information was useful. That's amazing. And so perfect, so simple, so actionable. That's beautiful. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for being here. This was above and beyond all of my expectations that I had. I really enjoyed this conversation. So I just want to say thank you and that I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, well, Paul, thank you for creating a platform that consistently put good into the world. So thank you. That's awesome. And, you know, I, again, I, I will link to your book, uh, The Language of Coaching in the, in the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out. But is there anything else that you're working on or that you're excited about coming up in the near future? Probably the number one thing is I'm working on two book projects, but I'm actually working on, on, on a fictional book that embodies a lot of what we've talked about, but certainly embodies the, the learning principles that I outline in my book, but that will play. And here's the beauty. They will play out in the interactions of the characters rather than the theorizing of an author on a static page. It'll be brought to life in story form. And I believe that's that's true to the messaging you and I've shared today and how I believe this information we best uh, consume by a broader audience. Love that. Can't wait, can't wait to uh, to read that when it's done and, and hear more about it. So thank you so much for being here and uh, have a great day. Here's you too. All right, that's it for today. I hope you got a ton of value out of this episode and enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. If you did and you want to show support, you can screenshot this and upload it to Instagram and tag me at Paul Levitin. You can share this episode with a friend or family member to spread the love and spread the knowledge. Or you can leave the show an honest rating and review on Apple, iTunes, or now Spotify as well. If you've made it this far, I sincerely thank you for being here and being along on this journey with me. Until next week, stay happy, stay healthy, my friend.